0: Good morning. Uh, Just a point of special privilege here. Thank you all for allowing me this opportunity. It's always uh, humbling and overwhelming, but I appreciate the opportunity to preach before you this morning. So if you'll please stand with me and open up your Bibles or look in your bulletins to this morning's text from 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is indeed your word. And we pray that you would be pleased this morning to attend unto it with your power of your spirit. To teach, to instruct, to move upon our hearts and minds and lives. That we might give special attention to it. That we might listen very carefully and closely to it. We pray that our hearts will be edified and that you will be glorified in all things. And indeed, that you will increase. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is Paul's last letter. He was imprisoned and he was expecting to die. He was writing to Timothy, his young protege, and trying to encourage him in the faith. Timothy apparently was a bit timid. And Paul was very bold and courageous. And so he was trying to encourage Timothy to be faithful in the duty and the work that God had called him to. I don't know about you, but it really strikes me whenever I read someone's last words. I've had the opportunity sometimes to read a a lengthy list of of people's last sayings, the the last things they uttered up on their deathbeds. And sometimes they can be quite strange. Sometimes they can be quite informative. Sometimes they're filled with regret. Sometimes they're filled with hope. Paul's words are ultimately filled with hope. Later on in this very chapter, he will say, I, uh, the, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. There is now a crown of glory laid up for me in heaven. Though he was facing martyrdom, certain death, he had such overwhelming victory and joy in knowing that his great God and Savior would fulfill his promises to him and deliver him from that worst of all enemies, death itself, and receive him into his eternal kingdom. When Paul writes to Timothy here, though, he hopes to be able to encourage him in something that is very critical for every minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I've thought of this charge, I've often thought that it seems most appropriate for those who are just beginning to enter the ministry. On well, further reflection over the past few weeks, I thought, you know, it really is something that should be preached to those who have been in the ministry for years as well, because it's something that could be neglected. But there's a greater application yet still. Lest you sit back and go, well, this is a charge to a young minister who's going to have to preach the word. So therefore, it has no application to me because I'm a simple congregant who sits out here and listens to the preaching of the word. I think by necessary and logical inference, if Paul's instructing Timothy to preach the word, he is instructing all of us to listen only to the word. And so I think there's a powerful message that all of us can derive from this scripture as well. The first thing I want you to see, though, is this solemn charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul knew a way to put a weight upon a young man's shoulders. He doesn't say, I have a helpful suggestion. After years of personal ministry, I found that this is, this is good for me, and I hope it will help you as well as you seek to go forward. Here's a small tidbit of advice. Take it or leave it. Do with it as you please. I charge you. It's a solemn command, a weighty instruction. And then notice before whom the charge is made. Who's called in as a witness to this charge? We are so moved by fellow human beings. We worry about our own reputations. What will he think of me? What will she think of me? Will this destroy my reputation? Will this build it up? We're so concerned with the judgment of fellow bags of dust and water. Paul doesn't call Timothy to witness before them. I'm not going to bear witness against you. Your fellow elders won't bear witness against you. I'm calling you to the judgment seat of Christ himself, who will return to judge the living and the dead. I'm calling God as my witness. I'm about to leave this earth, and Timothy, you better be faithful to what I'm about to tell you to do. There's such an overwhelming weight and burden in these words. I read that Martin Luther, before he would come into the pulpit, would have his knees knock together for fear lest he misinterpret these scriptures. And Charles Spurgeon said, I would shake and tremble. If some of the greatest preachers of all time have felt overwhelmed, intimidated by the weightiness of this task, how much more so must I? This is a huge responsibility that Paul is calling Timothy to acknowledge. I charge you before the presence of God. I'm calling God as witness. You will stand before him. It doesn't matter whether people speak well of you or ill of you. It doesn't matter whether they throng to hear you speak or whether they quickly exit the doors. The only thing that matters for you, young man, is that you will stand before God and give an account one day for how you have discharged your office. Boy, that's weighty. I must stand before the judgment seat of God. This is why the Apostle James says, Beloved, do not be many teachers, for you shall receive the greater condemnation. There are so many people who love to say, well, I think I could do that. I could open up the scriptures. I could explain what they mean. But there is such a weightiness to this task that you must be very, very careful lest you pursue this in arrogance and pride and with a desire for vainglory instead of a desire for God's glory alone to be lifted up and exalted. So it's a terrifying command as, God, as Paul calls God to witness. And then I want you to notice the next thing, the method and the message. What is this charge to him? Three little words. Preach the word. The method is very strange. Why preaching? Why did God select this of all things? And why preaching through ordinary human beings, through ordinary men? Why couldn't God have sent forth angels to declare the gospel? He certainly could have done so. Why couldn't God have simply shot uh, the gospel into our hearts? He could have done that as well. But it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to confound the world. It pleased God through this method of instruction, through this method of teaching and preaching, that people should be brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that the gospel should go out, that the scriptures should be declared throughout the world. And so this is a method that God has chosen Despite whatever someone might say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10. And how shall they hear unless they are sent? And Paul says to the Corinthians, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is a sacred duty of the preacher to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it's the duty of the preacher, it's also the duty of those who hear to listen intently, to study the scriptures for yourselves, and to make certain that the preacher is preaching and declaring the truth from the word of God, that he's giving you the sacred scriptures. In the book of Acts, Luke commends the Bereans who were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true when the Holy Spirit was moving through the writers of the New Testament, from the apostles uh, to, to, to the others who were d- divinely inspired, they quoted from the Old Testament to show support for, what, for their doctrine as they were delivering it to the people. It's necessary that we go back constantly to this book. And may I just say that there is a charge or an accusation that goes around today Of Bible-olatry. I don't even know how to take that charge, to be quite frank. They say that we worship the Bible if we try to hold to it. I suppose it's possible for somebody to not actually read the Scriptures and to say, well, this is just a sacred book or a holy book and and, and try to focus uh, attention upon the pages itself instead of actually digging into the Word. But I don't know how one can actually... Uh, begin to worship the word in place of God. It is God who speaks to us through this word. So yes, we should be in love with this book. Yes, we should listen to this book. Yes, we should be enthralled with its teachings. We should long to understand it. We should, we should be deeply moved by it because God is speaking to us. There was a time when I was engaged to my wife and uh, she and her family had traveled out to California for several months During that time, it was a very difficult moment because I deeply wanted to see her again. I wanted to be able to reach out and hold her hand. I wanted to be able to kiss her lips. And there was nothing I could do because she was so far removed from me. And so we corresponded frequently. We called each other on the phone. We wrote letters, all kinds of love letters. And it was so precious to me to get one of those love letters from my wife. I can scan to the bottom very quickly and see, I love you. And you know how women like to do that. It's underlined four times, and there's 15 exclamation points afterwards to let you know that they're serious. They really, really mean it. And all kinds of hearts in the eyes and all kinds of stuff that they do. This, is, this was my wife's expression, or my soon-to-be wife's expression of love and affection towards me. That letter moved me. It gripped me. I couldn't wait to open up those envelopes and dig into those Letters. To see what she had expressed to me. And I tried so hard to express love and affection towards her in return. Probably not with quite the flowery expressions that she did. But I tried to express my love for her as well. These are God's love letters. God has spoken to us. The creator of the universe. The almighty God. The one who has made us and made us for himself. Has spoken to us through this sacred text. Yes, we should be moved by this. And I won't make an apology for holding to this book. I won't make an apology for saying, I am. I want to be a man of this book. I want to believe its teachings. I want to hold to its doctrines. I want to accept its reproofs and corrections. I want to listen to its exhortations. I want to be moved to follow what it tells me to do. Because this is the voice of God speaking to me. I've told you before, I came from a charismatic background. So we believed in speaking in tongues and prophecies and and divine revelations and so forth. It's a strange thing to move from that kind of a background to a a Presbyterian church. But this is the direction that the Holy Spirit led me. There came a point in my life in which I realized what I needed was not some so-called fresh word from God. I needed a better understanding of this word from God. And I remember I spoke to my father about this and we would, in, in love, actually debate back and forth about theology. And in time, he came to see where I was going with this. And he would have people would call him up and he'd go, Pastor, I just really need, I really need a word from God. And he'd say, okay, let me see, which one shall I give you? Here's the voice of God. Here's where God speaks to us. There are people who think if I could just go into my prayer closet, if I could just sit silently in my room, if I could go up to the top of a mountain somewhere and hear God audibly speak to me, then I could be satisfied. Then I could hear from God. Then I could know God is real and he has spoken and I would be moved and I could do whatever he asked of me. But yet they won't open this book and read where God has spoken. The prophet Isaiah says to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And Isaiah also says, on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who is humble and broken and who trembles at my word. Do you want to hear from God? Here it is. Don't seek him in some extra biblical revelation. Don't seek him in some spiritual move that you get inside of a closet somewhere on top of a mountain. Seek him instead in these scriptures because here he has spoken. God has spoken. One of the great things about the Presbyterian church, and I didn't do it this time. Pastor Davis, very good about this. After he finishes reading the text for the morning, he says, this is the word of God. Why do we do that? Because we need to be reminded. This isn't the word of man alone. Yes, God used human authors to write this. But it was divinely inspired. If you will look a few uh, verses above. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. I saw a video from R.C. Sproul recently in which he said, we speak of inspiration when we speak of the scriptures, and that's fine. He said, but technically, it's almost like an expiration. It's a breathing out. In what way did God do this? It's a marvelous a mysterious way. But he moved upon Paul, for instance, as he sat down to pen this letter to Timothy and so superintended his writing so that Paul was not a mere automaton who was just mindlessly writing words down as God dictated them to him, some sort of a cosmic secretary, but rather Paul was writing what was in his heart, but God had inspired the message and content and made sure that the words that were recorded to Timothy were the words that he was breathing out himself. When we open this book, we are not reading merely inspired words in the sense that we say that song is inspired or that message was inspired, that card was inspired. Oh, that just so moved me. If we have that kind of a view of the scripture, we have far too low a view of the Bible This is the word of God. God himself has spoken. He has breathed out the truth. And this is why Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. It's too tempting to get up here and preach whatever I want to. To say whatever is on my mind. To give forth my own opinions, my own own ideas. We're all enamored with ourselves. We think we've got it just right. If we didn't, we'd change it. But no, we think we've got it just right if I could just correct other people's viewpoints and get them to see things the way I see them, because obviously I'm correct and you're wrong. But that's not the job of the preacher. The job of the preacher is to preach what God has breathed out, because this is correct. And wherever necessary, this will approve me, this will correct me, this will change and alter my ideas, this will show me where I am wrong and where you are as well. And so the job of the preacher is to constantly go back to the word of God. Preach the word. One of the things I wanted to note is an ambassador is not responsible for the content of the message. Only the accurate and complete delivery of it. One of the things that happens as you go through the scriptures is that there are parts that are very difficult and hard to understand. There are parts that rub us the wrong way. There are times a person can stand up here in the pulp and go, I know there are some people out there who aren't going to like what I say. But we're ambassadors for God. I don't get to alter the message. I don't get to tailor it to suit your personal likes or dislikes or my own. If I'm going to be a faithful ambassador, I must simply declare, thus says the Lord. This is what God says. I'm sorry if you don't like it. I'm sorry if it rubs you the wrong way. I'll try to make sure that the offense is caused from the scriptures themselves and not from me. I want to be as tactful and as polite and as courteous as I can be. However, there comes a time where someone must stand up and say, thus says the Lord. Let the chips fall where they may. We live in an age and a time in which the spirit of the world around us is constantly pressing in upon the church and calling for us to renounce our faith and meld into them. There are doctrines that you believe that run contrary to contemporary culture. It's time for you to jettison those old ideas of the past and embrace modernity. It's time for you to step up with the times. It's time for you to acknowledge that a book that is written thousands of years ago has no bearing upon contemporary society. And I imagine the false prophets in the days of Israel and Judah said the exact same thing. Go back and read the Old Testament scriptures. There's nothing new under the sun. What happened? God declared his word. God said, this is what I expect of you. This is what I want from you. And eventually the people said, it's too hard or it's not fun or the cultures around us are mocking us. I'd rather go off and worship Baal or Molech or engage in secretism and, and, and meld those false gods in with the true God, the Lord Yahweh. And God would raise up true prophets who would call the people to repentance. And they would say, no, we're, we're past that. We don't need that. We're good. That was for our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers. We've progressed past that now. We live in a society that is constantly telling us to get on board with the spirit of the age. And we must resolve in our hearts and minds. We will go no further than the sacred text itself. I believe this book to be true. I'm convinced, and I'm convinced overwhelmingly that it's true. I'm going to hold to this sacred text no matter what the society around me does. And further still, no matter what people inside the church of Jesus Christ do. I want to be a man of the word. Thoroughly and fully committed to it. Listen to what Spurgeon had to say about this subject. He said, You may do what you will, but as for me, God forbid that I should remove the old landmarks or seek out new paths, however inviting, or turn aside from that which I know to be the good old way. The old truth that Calvin preached, that Augustine preached, that Paul preached, is the truth that I must preach today, or else be false to my conscience and my God. I cannot shape the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England again and through America. The gospel truth must be proclaimed. It must thunder forth from the pulpits all across the land. There must be a declaration of this is what God says, and we will not be moved from it. We will stand up against the times. Truth is never with the majority. If you go back and look at those who have been persecuted for the faith, they often had to stand alone. Stop counting heads. Stop taking polls. Just because the majority believes this way doesn't make that way right. There has to be an absolute standard, a great touchstone by which we may compare all other teachings. Martin Luther said, this is the word of God, the great touchstone by which we compare all other teachings. And if we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's words and teachings and books. We must go back to this sacred text. When Peter, who is often credited with sticking his foot in his mouth much too often... In John chapter 6, Jesus was about to, uh, Jesus had some disciples who left him. He had others besides the close 12. And he had some disciples who left him because his teachings became too hard. And he turned to the 12 and he said, will you also leave me? And Peter said, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. There is no other game in town. Where am I going to go? I want to live. I'm afraid of the impending judgment. I'm afraid of the wrath of God. I want to live. And you and you alone have the words of life. I'll flee to you. I'll stick with you. I'll hold to you because you have the words of life. This is why Paul told Timothy to preach the word. And of course by extension for us to obey the word. Spurgeon tells a great story about uh, in in his magazine, The Sword and the Trowel. Back during a time of famine in the city of Rome, an emperor who was only bent upon his own glory sent a number of ships to the coast of North Africa, and their instructions were simple. Gather up as much sand as your ship can possibly carry and bring it back so that we can redo the flooring for the Roman Colosseum. One ship arrived on the coast of North Africa, and a captain looked at his men and said, I don't want to see a single grain of sand on this ship. People are starving. We will bring nothing back but food. It's the job of the minister. People are starving. This is not the time to give out the sand of human wisdom and intellect. This is not the time to give out the sand of the contemporary society. This is not the time to give out the sand of whatever philosophy has pervaded our culture this is the time to give out the solid food of the solid word of god when paul said goodbye to the ephesian elders in the city of miletus he said i have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of god the easy parts in the hard the pleasant parts and those are a little less pleasant But I have discharged my duty fully. I have given out to you the whole counsel of God. People are starving. They need food. It's a job of the preacher to give out spiritual food to those who are hungry. To point them to Christ, the only source of life, the bread of life who has come down from heaven. And say, here, come and feast upon him. This is the job of the preacher. Not to bring back loads of sand for Colosseum, for men's glory, but rather to bring back food so that people may have their lives saved. What does the Bible do? Think about this for a moment. It imparts wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It gives light for our journey. Your word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. It rebukes and corrects the erring. We see that in these verses right here. Uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It is an instrument for our sanctification. Your word, have I hid my heart, that I might not sin against you. And Jesus said, uh, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It provides all things necessary for salvation. Earlier, In this very book, Paul tells Timothy that from your youth up, you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. It fully equips the man of God. At the end of the the, the last chapter, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It encourages the downcast. It warns of judgment. It predicts ultimate victory. It accurately diagnoses our condition. It provides the only remedy. It tells us where we come from and where we are going. It is a mirror we may look into and see a true reflection of ourselves instead of the reflection that we give ourselves in our own hearts, which are warped and perverted. It is a telescope that also reveals to us God and the kingdom that is yet to come. And most importantly, it reveals Jesus. Spurgeon once said, I would rather find Jesus in the scriptures where he is not than miss him where he is. From throughout the Old Testament into the New, Jesus is clearly portrayed for us. And since Jesus is the only hope of our salvation, since he is the light of our lives, since he is the only reason that we have any expectancy of being able to stand before God, just and righteous and holy and perfect and pure, then we must cling to him and to him alone. And we find him no other place in all the world than here in the sacred text as the Holy Spirit reveals him to us. Notice this too. We are to declare the scriptures at all time. He says you must preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular and when it's not. When they throng to hear you, And when they turn their backs upon you, preach the word. This is a standard. will not be moved from it. All other teachings must be brought to this book and compared with this book. And if they are found to be contrary to this book, then they're wrong. So be faithful. Preach the word. Whether it's popular or not. Whether it's in season or out. Doesn't matter. Preach the word. Hold to these sacred truths. Proclaim them. Don't let them be dismissed by you. And then notice this, finally. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This one always strikes me whenever I read it. Paul knew that there was a time coming when people would turn away from sound teaching. Now, we can sometimes get that in our minds and think, well, that's speaking of a great apostasy towards the end of the ages and so forth. But there's always been times of apostasy, periods of apostasy and sometimes coming back. We see that in cycles throughout uh, the Old Testament. We see it, too, throughout the history of the church. Uh, The Reformation was a great time of revival of sound teaching and of the authority of the scriptures and a proclamation of the word of God. But all too often it follows up with people who then turn their backs up on the scriptures, walk away from them. In Germany, where Martin Luther labored so vigorously, even during his lifetime, he said, I see now that people are beginning to turn away from our teachings. And Germany became the hotbed for what's called higher criticism. And all sorts of false professors who rose up in the seminaries and who influenced young ministers who would go into the pulpits who began to teach things that, well, the Bible is certainly uh, inspired. There are certain things about it, but it's not really fully the Word of God. It contains the Word of God somewhere in there. But there are probably parts of it that are more man's thinking. Beginning to cast doubt upon the authenticity and authority of the sacred text. The Church of Rome herself believes that this is the Word of God, but she puts her traditions on a par with the sacred text and believes that where the two seem to be in conflict, one must yield to the authority of the Church and how the Holy Spirit has moved through the Church throughout the history. For true Reformed people, though, this is the ultimate authority. All other things must be subjected to it. In our own denomination, we have what we call our constitution. It's composed of four elements, the Westminster Standards. That's the Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, and the book of church order that helps us to govern our church. But if you notice in that list of four things, one thing that's noticeably missing is this. And there's a particular reason for that. This is not part of our Constitution. This is the supreme authority over our Constitution. The other four things were written by human beings and may be subject to correction and have over time. At various points, the church has said, well, let's tinker with this a little bit or adjust this to try to make it more accurate, more biblical. But this may not be touched. This may not be altered. This may not be changed. This is the supreme authority overruling umbrella. This is God's voice speaking to his church. And so in the word of God, we hear the voice of God and he has ultimate authority over the rest of our constitution. But there is coming a time and there already has been, have been times when people have turned away from the truth and turned aside to miss. When people say, I'm not content with the word of God. Some new doctrine, some new teaching, some new esoteric experience awaits me. Some new mystical revelation. It gives me tingling feelings up and down my spine. I feel like I've acquired a certain level of knowledge that's been hidden from others. I've achieved a certain level of realization. I'm now more aware of the universe around me and in touch with that universe. And in all of these things, there is nothing but pure, unbridled mythology. Only in this sacred text do we have the truth proclaimed to us. So it's a preacher's job job, to preach the word. And it's our job to listen very intently to it.